The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Up next is an interview with Jim Weber, the CEO of Brooks Running Company. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Jennifer Saba, a New York-based columnist for Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters. In early March, I sat down with Jim Weber, the chief executive officer of Brooks Running Company, to talk about his new book, Running with Purpose. In it, he chronicles how he turned around the running shoe company that was on death's doorstep because he couldn't compete with big players like Nike and Adidas. He revitalized the brand, eventually catching the attention of Warren Buffett. And by 2012, Brooks was officially named a standalone company within the Berkshire Hathaway empire. Yet these days, everyone and their dog is selling trainers and athleisure wear. Staying unique in a crowded field is a tough proposition. Hi, Jim. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. I'm glad to be with you today. Let's talk about your book, uh, Running With Purpose. And this is about really your job as chief executive of the running shoe brand, Brooks. Um, and I want to start when you landed at Brooks as a board member in 1998. It was um, under the ownership of private equity. And you describe it in your book as pretty much a mess, it sounded like. And it was close to going belly up. The brand was getting slaughtered by Nike and New Balance and Adidas and, and all those other competitors. Um, take us through that time. Uh, what was that like? And you know, what did you think about the, situa- the, the situation that you landed in? I mean, first as a board member, and then a couple of years later, you were, appoint- you were appointed as chief executive yeah. officer, right? Well, it, it was a dynamic time. So a good friend of mine, Helen Rocky, who had a long Nike career, had run Brooks in the 90s. And she had a she had good success there. They they got profitable and they got the brand pointed in the right direction, I think. And it was sold to private equity. So um, all in all, you know, she she really, uh, I think, was at the helm of the ship and, and steered it well. Um, and that transaction was, I think, good for Brooks. Then she decided to to go um, take another chapter of her career, and she left. So I joined the board right about that time when Whitney came in, because I had known them. The private equity firm was J.H. Whitney Capital, mm-hmm. and uh, and they wanted a local, you know, experienced CEO on the board, and and so I joined their board as an outside board member. And so in the two years that uh, that they owned it, um, they went through two more CEOs. So there were there were three people that came through the C-suite um, at the helm of the company, and it, it started to go sideways. Um, so much of the plan was to grow dramatically and aggressively um, in a broad-based way from price point products to some performance run and very broad distribution. And they entered the apparel business, and so it, it just ended up being unexecutable and they started to have big cash flow problems. Of course, there was leverage and, and debt uh, on the company after the private equity transaction. And they started to lose money consistently uh, quarter by quarter in those first two years. And so it turned out, um, it turned into a financial crisis, um, Jennifer. There were, there, they, had, they had way too much debt. The bank was getting extremely uncomfortable. There were board meetings where um, we were all on, on conference calls and uh, there were weekly board meetings for a while because the bank uh, didn't want to fund payroll. And we went through a couple cycles. The bank wanted more capital to come in, given the losses and, and um, really the lack of confidence in, in the business 
the business strategy and, and the profit potential and cash flow issues within the business. So the bank wanted out. And so it, was, it turned into a crisis that was week to week for the board in emergency board meetings. So it's one of those situations where, you know, the bank wanted either to be taken out or wanted more capital to come in. And, and, and the company was two years into this new private equity relationship. So it, it wasn't, it was a, uh, it was, it was an unsolvable puzzle in the sense that um, what, what was happening wasn't going to be sustainable. And, and that really is what created the crisis. So how did you come to the decision to make Brooks then just kind of really focus it on uh, a running only brand? It seems like you, you pulled the, the broader inventory and, and, you know, cut, different types of products and, and really focus the company. I mean, that sounds intuitive, but I, but maybe it wasn't because that, clearly your predecessors didn't do that. So how did you decide that that was, the, that was the way to go? Yep. Yeah. I think that, you know, I had cut my teeth a bit in enthusiast performance sporting goods equipment at that point in, in snowboard business and, and the water sports business. And so I had a, an equipment mindset and I saw in our product line, a couple of key shoes, the beast and the addiction, and then a new shoe that was coming on in stability, the adrenaline. And those are performance products. And they're they're almost bought as a piece of equipment by runners, Jennifer. You know, the, for, for people that are putting mileage in, the shoe is a piece of equipment. And and every other brand was was broad product lines, not just in running, but court shoes, basketball, et cetera. And then all the price points, good, better, best, literally starting at $30 going to north of one, $150. And, and they were 100, 200. Nike at the time was 200 si times the size of Brooks. So we just said, you know what, we got to focus and let's do what we do well, which was performance running shoes and, and just put all of our people in product focused on those and making them better season after season. And that's exactly what happened. But I think the conventional wisdom in the industry, Jennifer, was that athletic footwear brands have to play in all of these categories. You need three legs of the stool because of the fashion cycles and, and all the other things that went on. And the truth was you didn't need to do that. We wanted to build a, an enthusiast brand and earn the trust of runners, you know, 20 miles into the shoe. You know, so many, we knew this at the time that so many people that are running frequently they know at mile 20, maybe two weeks into the shoe, whether they're ever going to buy that shoe again. So we just decided that we were going to go after, you know, earning that second shoe from the runner. And, and that was the, that it was more than anything else. It was a choice on which customer we were going to focus on. And the bet on running and runners was, was just a, the right one because the category is so big. Yeah, that's what I was, I, I guess more people run than, play basketball or, uh, you know, uh, some of the other sports that maybe, like, as you were saying, Nike was trying to, or Nike is going after. Um, so you cut to 2004, you turn the business around, um, and it is sold to the athletic wear uh, company, Russell, for $115 million, which, as you say in your book, at the time, it was nine times EBITDA. Um, so what was that experience like? Uh, you, you're now under Russell. Um, you've kind of made this a success story, at least. You pulled it out from at least not surviving. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, what happens next? 
You know, it was really interesting, and I had I had had some experience um, being inside companies that were both buying and selling, at from Pillsbury to uh, a couple of other individual divisions at Coleman and the like. And so when I came in, you know, the team was suspicious of me, and and they said, Jim, you're just here to sell this company for Whitney. You're just here to you know polish up and sell it. And and I believe this to my core. I said, here's the here's the deal. If if we have issues, we're going to get sold. If we can reflect opportunities and we have a plan to go after those, we're going to attract investors. So every step of the way from that point forward, we treated Russell Athletic as an as our investor. And they that was good for them too, because they saw Brooks as as upgrading their portfolio as a premium enthusiast brand, particularly in footwear. You know, we were we were an upgrade to their portfolio and a growth vehicle. And so that's exactly what happened in in the process um, as we were looking for new ownership coming from the private equity days, you know, and, you know, we negotiated our independence. We were sort of this small specialty performance focused brand that was growing nicely and very profitable. So we we earned their trust and they continued to support us in in pursuing the opportunities that we were showing. So a couple of years later, um, Russell is bought by Fruit of the Loom, which if so you can take me through this. So did Berkshire Hathaway own Fruit of the Loom at the time and then they decided to buy Russell or was, uh, how did that work? Yeah. How did you end up at Berkshire? How did, how did uh, Brooks end up at Berkshire Hathaway? Yep. Yeah. So Berkshire, I think, had acquired Fruit of the Loom in the early part of that decade. And then Fruit of the Loom was growing internally and via acquisition. So they bought Russell which included Spalding and Brooks and, and some other brands as well. But they really bought it for the apparel and the Russell brand. And so once again, we sort of negotiated our independence, but that put us in the Berkshire portfolio, you know, being part of Fruit of the Loom. Uh, we, were, we were, again, a distinct entity reporting into Fruit, as was Russell. And, uh, and it was kind of the same relationship that we had built with Russell, we once again worked hard to earn their trust and, and support so we could pursue growth opportunity. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about that is you, you started out as like a, you're running the company uh, under private equity ownership, then you're bought by a larger firm, and then you're bought by an even larger firm, and kind of you're a division within a division within a division. Um, so how do you how do you stay relevant, I guess, is, is the best way to say this at Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, it's a sprawling conglomerate. Um, how did you catch the attention of, of Warren Buffett? We took full responsibility for our brand and, and identifying growth opportunities for it. We really see from the very beginning now for 20 years, we've been you know focused on a purpose of inspiring everyone to run their path. And it reflected the fact that the sport is really unique, Jennifer. We spoke about it earlier. Unlike basketball, hockey, and, and so many others, running is, is a fantastic sport, track and field, cross country, ultras, trail, but it, it transcends the sport into an investment in yourself for health, wellness, and even mental clarity. I'm, I, I always uh, would run to get mental clarity on big decisions. So running is is unique. 150 million people run worldwide. It's huge. So for Brooks, you know, for 20 over 20 years now, we've been focused on building a brand right in the middle of this lifestyle, at in in a premium performance fashion with with fantastic business metrics, and so return on capital, our margins, our profitability and flow through has always been in the, in the top half of the industry, and we benchmark against 
you know, our, our, our peers in the industry. So we've now grown Brooks over this 20 year period from about 60 million in revenue to last year, we did just over 1.1 billion with fantastic metrics. And we see opportunity to grow this brand globally in the next decade to $4 billion. So it's a phenomenal business. And when I came into fruit, you know, we, 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 we've been at this for now a while and we're executing, I think, uh, the plan pretty well year in, year out. I knew that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger would, would love the characteristics of this business because we're building a really unique brand and we're building it for the long term to, to sustain and defend, you know, our distinctively what we are. We're not trying to be an athletic brand. We have plenty of those we compete with. We're not trying to be an outdoor brand or a, a fitness brand, we're a run brand. And so we really feel like we're doing something no one else is, and it's a great business. So that, it wasn't always a, a constant upward trail of success, if you will. I mean, you, you kind of detail that, that yep. the company hit some walls even under Berkshire's um, umbrella, and, and specifically in 2008. And I just want to quote basically what you wrote, which was that increased costs in China, higher oil prices, currency fluctuations, and labor markets, uh, you know, posed a big issue and challenge for you. Um, that sounds really familiar. <laughs> um, so I guess, what did you learn from that crisis and how can you apply those lessons to, it sounds like today's exact environment. So, yep. you know, what, how, how do you translate that? Yeah, I think that, um, you know, we're, we're a we're a small global brand is how I describe us against our competitors, which are much larger than we are. So we have to navigate all of this disruption that we're seeing that is caused by the pandemic and just global economic conditions and now social issues. And, and now we have a war going on. So it's just incredibly challenging. But, you know, for us, when we went through the Great Recession happened in 08, 09, and there was a book called Born to Run that created a barefoot running earthquake, which was another uh, factor that we had to navigate. But what was really happening there, I think the dollar was getting strong at the time and we had we had a lot of inflation. So our margins were just under pressure. And uh, I remember one conversation I had with Warren Buffett on on currency because, you know, our margins were just collapsing in Europe with the strength of the dollar. And I said, OK, this is going to be great. Now I can talk to Warren Buffett about how to manage through this currency and solve it. Um, because our profitability is down. If somebody's gonna know about this, he will. And the conversation, Jennifer, was priceless to me because it, he, he listened to me and then he said, you know what, Jim, I have no idea where currency is going, so I don't spend any time thinking about it. If I were you, I would focus on your customer and you're gonna make less money in Europe next year. That's just the way it is. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, so if you focus on your customer, you'll navigate through it. And, th and that's exactly, you know, obviously what we've had to do in every one of these disruptive times that we've faced and every business is facing it, right, Jennifer? So, but for us, because we're only in one category, you know, we can't, we can't, you know, sort of amp up um, this, this product line or amp up that distribution channel because we all, we are a singular focused uh, brand and, and what we do is performance running shoes. So, so if there are waves that go through our category, we're going to feel those, but the key is, we navigate through them well and and stay connected to the customer all the way through and on the other side. Today, there are so many brands right now in athletic shoes that are, are quite expensive, right? You have kind of ultra luxury has gotten into the game with like Gucci and Golden Goose and Roger Federer, you know, he just backed on and it goes, you know, the list is 
you know, comprehensive of, you know, competitors, right? So how do you stay relevant in today's marketplace? It's a great question. The uh, apparel and footwear categories are huge and everybody that's capable of making a running shoe right now pretty much is. It's from all the athletic brands, of course, and fitness and lifestyle and all of the fashion brands. Yeah, athleisure is is just giant. And, you know, one of the truths in our industry is that apparel and footwear is personal expression. It is for all of us. You know, what you wear says something about who you are. So for us, what we're we're, we're building credibility and, and over time we think we'll earn authenticity is in performance running product that works super well. And, and if we're bringing innovation and unique engineering and design into it, it also ought to be beautifully beautiful from an aesthetic point of view. Crafted beauty is, is our sort of design mantra. And, and so fantastic product ought to look great too. And that's where we think we build credibility on is, you know, it works at mile 26. Um, even if you never run 26, um, it's gonna work for your active lifestyle, one foot in front of another. In one sense, we we include walking as slow running in this category, Jennifer, because the best walking silhouette is a great running shoe. It has the most technology in it. And it's really the same for, for the gym and fitness. Many In many respects, sometimes for many people, the best uh, fitness shoe is, is a good running shoe. And so the halo that comes off of this frequent runner into you know these adjacencies of casual runners and walkers and the like is just massive. So that's where our center of gravity is as a brand. That's where our credibility is. That's where we're gonna, we're gonna continue to build heat so that we, we can halo into some of these more casual areas and people can trust that it's fantastic products. So there's lots of ways to be successful in apparel and footwear, but we love this performance positioning that we have because um, we it's a niche. We think we can build a fantastic brand in, in that focused niche. Um, earlier in the conversation, you referenced uh, working at Pillsbury, and I, I want to talk a little bit about that experience. I mean, that was your first, basically one of your first big jobs uh, where you were in the M&A department, and it sounded like it was a baptism by fire because at the time, the company was fending off a hostile takeover uh, launched by Michael Milken when he was at uh, Drexel Burnham. Uh, what was that like? What did you learn from the experience of working at Pillsbury? And, you know, how did you take those skills and apply them to kind of where you are today? Well, it was it was a absolute fire hose of learning for me. I was so fortunate. I worked for Jerry Levin, who was one of their senior executives, and he actually loaned me as an analyst to the uh, chairman and CEO, Bill Spore, for about six months. And it was at a time because of the activist investors of the day were were you know unfriendly takeover folks. There was so much pressure on the company to solve the portfolio and and profitability and growth because they had stalled. And so we did a review of more than 30 businesses with Booz Allen. And what was so um, um, sad to me is that. We had fundamentally underinvested across dozens of businesses, and so their their competitive posture was weak. They weren't gaining new customers, and they were being uh, outmarketed by competitive brands. And it was systemic. and And so, in the go go period of those days, they were they were a growth, you know, packaged goods company, and and you know you had to deliver double digit growth and profitability and all that. They had done that for I don't know 12, 15 years, and then the music just stopped. 
And so the lesson for me was, wow, you know, we, they ended up losing their independence. Almost all of the, the top 30 leaders ended up leaving after, you know, they were taken over and a lot of businesses were weak. Um, and so, you know, what, what, what I came away with is that I'm never going to be a short termer. I, you know, mm -hmm. to manage a business for the short term um, is, is, you know, on the verge of being an un unethical in some sense, and it doesn't create long-term value. So it was, it, because it was systemic, it had a big impact on me, big impact. Yeah. So how, I mean, just to kind of circle back then to Berkshire Hathaway then, what, I mean, but what are the expectations of as running a company under that, you know, that, that conglomerate, so to speak? I mean, what, what are your, what do you have to do and what, you know, what are the benchmarks uh, as, as being a Berkshire uh, holding company? You know, I, it, Berkshire is so unique. I, I have to believe it's one of the most unique one-off Fortune 50 companies anywhere. The culture is absolutely one of deserved trust. So, you know, of the, you know, more than 100 different companies and businesses they have, maybe over 200, each one is distinctive and unique. So they want, they want you as the steward to manage it, to maximize the opportunities, run it well, run it ethically, of course. But, but I, I love it, Jennifer, because I, I think it's enterprise stewardship, right? I'm the chief strategy officer, culture officer, chief risk officer, and with our team, we we create an opportunity roadmap, build strategies behind it, and execute against it. And and because they, you know, we've gotten them to trust, you know, how we see the brand and where we're going with it, they're absolutely cheering us on. And if we hit, you know, if we hit a, a you know, we hit a pothole where where you know, the, just the market's tough, the bottom drops out, we've got challenging economics. Um, we're working it really hard, and I think they trust that we will, and and they'll be patient with us as we work through it. That's why we are where we are today, is we've been able to play through difficult times, solve for the customer, come out the other side. So the Berkshire culture, it's so unique, and I think it's a huge competitive advantage for us, because I would say we're more, you know, if there's three horizons, you know, horizon one is kind of, you know, zero to two years, horizon two is maybe two to five, and then horizon three is five plus, we're investing against every one of those horizons. And um, R&D is obviously horizon two and three. We're launching in China, um, literally, and as we speak in the next two months, that's that's a 10-year um, wow. for us. That's a 10-year investment. So, so I think Berkshire allows us to do all of that, and it's a big advantage in our category. Well, I, I, I want to ask you actually about the short term then, uh, you know, before before we go. I mean, what, what do you see in the next, you know, three to six months? I mean, it's it's interesting you say that you're launching in China now. Um, like, how do you view kind of the international opportunity versus this sort of, um, like I see this, I guess, in corporate culture here in the United States where there's kind of this pullback into trying to manufacture things here in the U.S. Do you, do you think that that's a real trend or do you think that that is um, just something that, you know, will fall by the wayside once things kind of normalize again? Like, what's your view? On that? Yeah, on, on that view, I do think it's a long-term trend to, for a variety of reasons to pull production into regions where the demand is. So we have a 10-year vision to be regionally manufacturing in Europe and North America. 
and there's a lot of work between here and there. It's the right thing to do from so many levels. In Asia, we're, we have some in China, but we've been moving away from China. All of our manufacturing in Asia is in Vietnam and Indonesia. So we think regional manufacturing is critical from, if nothing more, a sustainability point of view. It costs too much and the lead times are too long to ship products all around the world. So we think, you know, we just think it, it's going to make sense and and from so many different perspectives. And so we're building out roadmaps um, on what it's going to take to be manufacturing regionally in 2030. Okay. Well, Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the exchange. It was a pleasure to have you. Thank you for having me. Great conversation, Jennifer. That wraps up this episode of The Exchange. I want to give a shout out to Sharon Lan and Pranav Kiran, who produced this podcast. If you haven't already done so, please sign up on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you go for audio cravings. Also check out our sister podcast, The Views Room. And of course, don't forget to read Breaking Views. Thanks for tuning in and listening.